coming up. As neat as it is to be able to, to say, you know, I have a connection to this moment in history, I really feel like the work that was done here, it was done in the 1930s. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Ninety years ago today, on March 25th, 1931, nine black teenagers were falsely accused of raping two white women on a train near Scottsboro, Alabama. Charlie Weems, Ozzie Powell, Clarence Norris, Andrew and Leroy Wright, Olin Montgomery, Willie Roberson, Haywood Patterson, and Eugene Williams are now known as the Scottsboro Boys. John Miller, assistant director and associate professor at the University of Alabama's New College, You would later work on a petition to pardon three of these men, but can I have you start by taking us all the way back to that day in 1931 when these young men were arrested? What happened? Sure. And, you know, so much of this is just sort of um, accidents of geography and timing. But for where the train stops, you know, these defendants could very well have been the Knoxville Nine. Uh, But as it turns out, what happens is there are probably three groups of people who are hoboing across the Deep South in March of 1931, all of them in search of some sort of gainful employment. And you've got a group probably of white teenagers and young men. You've got a group of black teenagers and young men, and then two women, Victoria Price and Ruby Bates. And it's absolutely unchallenged that some sort of fight broke out on the train. Nobody knows exactly what happened, but uh, according to various accounts, um, either the uh, group of young white men jumped off the train or were forced off the train. In any event, one of those guys who jumps off the train runs to a nearby community, the police are summoned, and then the train is stopped in a community called Paint Rock, Alabama, which is in Jackson County, which is where Scottsboro is. And because Scottsboro is the county seat of Jackson County, and because it's the nearest community that's large enough to actually have a jail, you know, of any description, this is where events start to take place. And what becomes clear in time, but is fuzzy, you know, in history, is how Victoria Price and Ruby Bates transition from, you know, well, there was a fight to we were raped. Um, And it appears, basically, that because they were concerned, that is, Victoria Price and Ruby Bates were concerned, that they might be picked up under uh, the Mann Act, which was traveling across interstate boundaries for immoral purposes, that they then rather calculatedly blamed the young black men and said that they had been raped in order to remove suspicion from themselves because Victoria Price was known to operate as a prostitute and Ruby Bates uh, had some history of this as well herself and you know i don't want to get into you know smearing people because of horrible economic decisions that they had to make because we were in the middle of the depression but 
these women used their privilege uh, in order to deflect attention from themselves and to focus it instead on the Scottsboro Nine. Right, and it lands these nine teenagers, as you mentioned, in the Scottsboro Jail. I understand that news spreads pretty quickly about these allegations, and a lot of folks in Alabama are outraged, not at their arrest, but at the alleged crime, and they actually show up at the jail? Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the things that's um, not particularly well-known about this story, uh, but for the efforts of very brave people on the ground, uh, this could have been a lynching that would have occurred the second day. Wow. And, you know, what happens instead is that the the jail is defended. Um, and then four days later, there's an indictment of all nine uh, Scottsboro defendants for rape. And then six days after that, the trial begins. And, you know, even by 21st standard, 21st century standards of lawyering, that's an incredibly accelerated timeline. And it sort of telegraphs from the word go that the fix is in. Yeah, the fix was in. And the end result of these expedited trials, with one exception, was that all the boys were convicted. And the exception was the trial of the youngest boy, 13-year-old Roy Wright, whose trial ended in a hung jury. But all eight others were initially convicted. And based on very little evidence, essentially just the testimony of Victoria Price, who was one of the two women on the train. And we should mention two other things. They were convicted by a jury of all white men, and then their sentences were exceptionally steep. Absolutely. So you're looking at uh, death sentences against four of them. You've got one 99-year year sentence, and then the remainder of the, the sentences are for 75 years. So, I mean, it, not, it, it's not enough to say they threw the, the book at them, right? I mean, they, they threw the box and volume at them. Over the next few years, a bunch of important events would take place. All of the convictions are appealed. The appeal reaches the U.S. Supreme Court. Ultimately, all nine of the boys and young men are granted new trials. Haywood Patterson is then the first to be retried. And astoundingly, Ruby Bates, one of the women who said she was raped, she testifies as a witness for the defense, saying that she was with Victoria Price the entire train ride and that neither of them were raped by these nine young men. She said they spent the previous night with their boyfriends and without getting into too much detail, essentially the physical evidence backs her story up. But despite that, Haywood Patterson is found guilty again and sentenced to death. And that's when the judge in this case, a man named James Horton, sets aside the jury's conviction and suspends the trials of the other eight defendants. And not only that, but he grants a new trial for Haywood Patterson. And he does all of this, as I understand it, knowing that it's essentially going to end his career. That standing up for justice for this young black man is going to be wildly unpopular in Alabama in the 1930s. Oh, absolutely. And, and it, you know, he basically is removed from hearing cases uh, subsequent to this that are related to this matter. And in 1934, he's, uh, so they run somebody against him and they beat him. So, I mean, this really was the, the sort of end of, of his career. And, you know, it, it's easy to look at this and say that, that Horton's a, a kind of, of hero for this. But I think the fact that he, you know, was basically run out of office shows that, you know, he may have had a, a, a 
deep sense of integrity that mattered a lot in this case because it preserves you know some of the evidence that we wind up relying on when we look back at this and we try and seek exonerations and we try and, and seek pardons but the reality is that you know there wasn't sufficient traction at the time for the few and far between judge hortons of the world to prevail in the moment so you know yes the there, there is a, a, an environment of individual and institutionalized racism that is at work in the 1930s in Alabama. Um, and it is very much to blame for the convictions that occurred in 31, the ones that occurred in 36. I mean, you know, the, even as late as 1937. The rest of the 1930s then are packed with various appeals and retrials, and it all gets a little bit messy. By the time we get to the 1940s, where have all of these separate cases ended up? How have they all been adjudicated at that point? So the most important things that happened between um, the 1930s and the 1940s are there's a series of negotiations that happens in uh, the late 1930s. It looks like for a period of time that there's going to be a, a deal worked out for pardons with Bib Graves, then governor of the state of Alabama. It blows up. Um, but in 1937, uh, charges are effectively dropped uh, against um, Montgomery, Roberson, Williams, and then Roy Wright, who is, as you pointed out, the youngest of these Scottsboro defendants. And basically, what happens is it's a legal maneuver. It's called null pros. And it's basically just saying, we're not going to continue to prosecute these charges against these uh, accused persons. And it's not the same thing as saying, you know, we are saying they didn't do anything wrong. It's basically putting it on the back burner so that they can come back and pick it up later if there is sufficient evidence to bring the case again. But in any event, what happens is, you know, uh, these four are taken out of consideration. Um, and then sort of at the same time, um, one of the things that's happening is Ozzie Powell has the, 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 the rape charge dropped against him in, in 1937 too. This is because in 1936, uh, there's a an assault that occurs while Powell is being transferred. Um, either a fight broke out because Powell had been threatened and he was trying to escape, um, you know, the the barbarous conditions in prison in Alabama, or he, you know, it's unclear. Maybe he was threatened by one of the law enforcement officers, but he somehow produces a pocket knife in the car stabs the sheriff's deputy, the car pulls over, the sheriff gets out and shoots Powell. Um, he has head trauma, survives. But, you know, Clarence Norris, who's the only Scottsboro boy who was pardoned during his lifetime, uh, said, it, you know, in reflection, that Powell was never the same. So basically, we've got five guys who, you know, were part of the Scottsboro Nine who are now out of uh, the, the trial business. Uh, at least for this charge, um, you know, Powell pleads out to assaulting the sheriff's deputy 
And basically, in exchange for that, they dropped the, the rape charges from 1931 against him. So what that does is that it leaves Andy Wright uh, is still involved, Charlie Weems is still involved, and then you've got Patterson and then um, Norris. And the trials against them continue, you know, ad nauseum. People are being imprisoned as a result of this as late as 1944. Wow. Uh, you know, the last person to be released uh, on parole um, is released in 1950, I want to say. Yeah, it's Andy Wright. He gets paroled in, in 1950. Right? I mean, 19 years. Only one of the nine Scottsboro defendants would live to see a pardon, and that's Clarence Norris in 1976. By the time we get to the early 2000s, all of the nine men have passed away, and all but three have either been pardoned or had their convictions overturned. And I understand that's where a woman named Sheila Washington comes into the picture. And unfortunately, she passed away earlier this year, but... Tell me about Sheila and her interest in this story and these cases. Sheila was a force of nature. And, you know, I I really wish that you could have had the opportunity to interview her. Uh, Her passion for this was absolutely infectious. What happened with Sheila, at least as, as I understand the story, is that as she was growing up in Scottsboro, she had heard stories about the Scottsboro defendants. Uh, and not surprisingly, um, even at that point in history, people didn't want to talk about it. Uh, and she discovered underneath her parents' bed, uh, an account of the Scottsboro proceedings. Uh, this was a a, a book that Hayward Patterson, uh, published. Uh, and she was introduced to the narrative of Scottsboro then. And she, she was blown away by it. She was, it just became a, a thing that mattered to her. And it mattered to her that the, these young men be remembered, that their struggle be recognized, that the, the, the falsity of the charges against them and then the travesty of the trial that had been, trials that had been carried about out against them be called attention to. She had a, a brother who wound up going to prison, and I think that she very much identified the struggle that the Scottsboro defendants had with that of her brother. And I think that uh, being able to uh, focus her energy and attention on remembering and clearing the names of the, the Scottsboro defendants took on a, an almost spiritual importance in her life. Um, she, along with some other community members who were very devoted to this cause, were the uh, original founders of the Scottsboro Boys Museum and Cultural Center. And she takes the helm as the initial director. My colleague, Dr. Ellen Spears, who is uh, uh, also with me in New College, she's an environmental historian, but uh, she got involved with the Scottsboro Museum. Uh, because students of hers were actually helping to develop materials to market the museum. 
And, you know, as Sheila meets uh, Dr. Spears, Ellen, my colleague, she tells her that she's, you know, the museum is one thing, but really her ultimate goal is to try to achieve the exoneration and pardon uh, the Scottsboro boys. And there's no mechanism for doing this. Um, You know, Sheila's involved with some uh, well-known defense attorneys out of Birmingham. They're writing letters to then-Governor Bentley in Alabama. They're writing letters to the Pardons and Paroles Board. And the, the letter to Bentley gets a polite, you know, I can't really do anything. I'm the governor. I don't have any pardon, pardon authority. And that's true. The, the pardon authority in Alabama, as it does in, in many states, rests with a separate board. Um, but we get in contact with the Pardons and Paroles Board and now Judge Griffin, um, but then uh, I, I forget what his exact title was, uh, working for the, the Board of Pardons and Paroles, says we can't do posthumous pardons, but you should look at this thing that exists in Birmingham where uh, arrest records can be expunged even posthumously if those arrests came about as a consequence of civil rights activism in Birmingham in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, having grown up in and around Alabama politics, my antennas went up. Uh, And, you know, what I figured out uh, was going on was we were being shown how this could happen. Mm. And I said to the group that we were working with, um, why don't we draft some legislation to create a pathway for posthumous pardons that are the result of Jim Crow racism and see if we can't find legislative sponsors for this. And this is ultimately what you end up doing through a piece of legislation called the Scottsboro Boys Act that passed in 2013. And it basically says that people who were unjustly convicted of felonies because of racial animus that have passed away can seek posthumous pardons if they have support from the district judge or district attorney for the district involved. And you then worked with others to use this new avenue to seek out that posthumous pardon for the remaining three Scottsboro boys? That's what we did. We worked up a petition for a posthumous pardon. Uh, so all of this uh, comes to head in 2013. Um, the petition is uh, sent on to the Bar- Board of Pardons and Paroles. Uh, Sheila Washington, Ellen Spears, and I go to Montgomery in November of 2013 for the, the hearing. And the Board of Pardons and Paroles issues a full and unconditional pardon based on innocence for the four Scottsboro or three Scottsboro boys who died uh, without being pardoned. Wow. What was that day like for you to, to be a part of that? I am a footnote to history. I'm a well-documented footnote to history, but I am a <laughs> footnote to history. Um, you know, everybody knows the expression standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, that's really all I was doing. You know, I mean, I think about all the people who were involved in this before I was even born, right? Before my parents were even born. Right. There were people fighting for this since the 1930s, going back over 80 years. Right. And as neat as it is to be able to, to say, you know, I have a connection to this moment in history, I really feel like 
the the work that was done here, you know, it was done in the 1930s. You know, we just didn't really see the fruition of that work uh, until 2013. And, you know, the, it always makes me think about the Martin Luther King quote about the, the moral arc of, of history may bend slowly, but it bends toward justice. Right. Um, so, you know, at the time, people were talking about righting wrongs in history. And, and I think that that's a little bit simplistic. I think that, you know, all you can really do is continue to excavate what's out there uh, and show to people uh, that we have work yet left to do. Mm-hmm. Bring this back to Sheila Washington. As I mentioned, she did pass away recently. But it sounds like, as you mentioned, her work in founding this museum is one of the reasons this piece of Alabama history and American history will not be lost to the future. Sure. Um, you know, the Scottsboro Boys Museum uh, celebrated its 10th anniversary right before the COVID outbreak. Um, and there's a renovation that's been planned and is now underway. Uh, for the museum to take it from what very obviously has lived most of its life as a church and to turn it into a museum with state-of-the-art exhibits um, with photographs from the time that put things in context uh, and can make for a truly moving Scottsboro Boys Museum experience. The thing thing that I think is, is... that I wish had happened differently uh, is that, you know, Sheila wound up getting ill uh, and dying quite suddenly just as the, the physical preparations for this renovation were starting, right? Um, so she won't be able to see the fruition of her decades of work. And that means, you know, finding ways to use this museum to continue the work that she was so passionate about, not just for the Scottsboro defendants, but for however many young men and women of color wind up on the wrong side of an overly powerful institution like law enforcement or cultural assumptions of guilt. And, you know, that work uh, that, that Sheila gave so much of her life to lived in that museum. And I think that to her, um, it was a kind of, of a sanctuary, right? I mean, it, it was a place where she could feel the good that her work was doing. And for me, it's, it's a tremendous disappointment that she won't be able to see it go to that next level. Well, John Miller, Assistant Director and Associate Professor at the University of Alabama's New College, thank you so much for helping us share this story. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Daily Crime. As usual, we'll be back with another episode for you tomorrow. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to hit follow or subscribe on whatever podcast app you use. And you can let us know what you think by dropping us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for today. Until next time for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. Redmond.